This was recorded live at Trinity Church in San Juan, Puerto Rico. For more information, go to trinitypr.org. We are continuing our sermon series through the book of 1 Corinthians. Uh, this morning we're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. And last week we talked about what God thinks about our decision-making. And we've kind of talked about how God gives us uh, realms, that there's better decisions and there's good decisions, and that God instills within us those desires for diversity and goodness in His world. And today we're actually going to be continuing this idea of investigating what it means uh, to make decisions as Christians. Because although God gives us an immense amount of freedom, an immense amount of freedom to choose between good things like we talked about last week, He's also going to say that that is regulated by love. And so in 1 Corinthians 8, we're going to see Paul tease that out, what it looks like for our decisions to be regulated by love. <clears throat> now, sometimes on the face of it, we, we like to think that having our freedoms or our rights regulated by something else uh, is the same as oppression. Uh, but we all kind of understand that we want some people's freedoms to be restricted. So although your neighbor might be free to mow their lawn at 2 in the morning, you would like their freedom to be restricted to prevent them from mowing their lawn at 2 in the morning, right? We, we inherently understand that all of our freedoms existing together requires um, some respect of the other, uh, requires working together for the sake of freedom and in the name of love. So as we do this today in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, I'd invite you to stand for the reading of God's word as we see how God teaches us what it is like for our freedom to be regulated by love. 1 Corinthians chapter 8, starting in verse 1. Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom, we are all, <laughs> through whom are all things and through whom we exist. However, not all possess this knowledge, but some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat it, and no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who having, have, for if anyone sees you who, having knowledge, eating in an idol's temple, Will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. Thus sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. This ends the reading of God's word. May he bless it for you and for me. Please be seated. 
So today we're going to be exploring what it looks like to have our freedom and our rights regulated by love. And specifically regulated, as we could see in this passage, by love for a brother or sister in Christ. And we're going to look at how love regulates our freedoms in two specific ways. The first being that love seeks to know. And the second being that love condescends. So first is that love seeks to know. There's this interesting phenomenon with college students, uh, and really all of us, but particularly college students, it shows up in an interesting way. They leave for their first semester, they go, they pour themselves into study, they hear interesting new thoughts, and they come back home, and they start having conversations again, and they're like, well, actually, my professor said blah, 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 blah. Now, the interesting thing about this is that they believe that they do have knowledge, and that they have studied. The tendency and tone tends to be, though, that they're done with their knowledge, that they've already arrived at it, and that after a semester of college, that they've reached the end of what there is to know about this particular topic. Maybe you've done this at points. I know I have. I had a good friend in seminary who liked to say that uh, the breadth of his knowledge was a mile wide and about an inch deep. Now, what made him so much fun was that he would say whatever that inch deep was with 100% confidence. He was 100% confident about what he was saying, even if you're like, are you sure about that? I don't think you know what you're talking about. There's an Avett Brothers song that has the lyrics, ain't it like most people, I'm no different. We love to talk about things we don't know about. Ain't it like most people, I'm no different. We love to talk about things we don't know about. Now Paul says, that this kind of knowledge, actually, a a similar use of knowledge is being used in 1 Corinthians. So he starts off in chapter 8 by talking about this knowledge that some Christians have about eating meat that's sacrificed to idols. But in verse 2, he'll say, say that they do not yet know as they ought. Maybe they like to talk about things that they don't know a lot about. You see, in Corinth, a lot of the meat that would have been available for purchase probably went through temple sacrifices first. Meat was awfully expensive, and you're going to kind of want to get the most use out of it that you can. So if you're going to kill an animal, uh, you're probably going to take it to sacrifice it to the gods first. Uh, The priests and temple temple officiates might take their cut, uh, and then the rest may be sold in the marketplace. Or actually, if you Uh, If we fast forward to 1 Corinthians 10, which we'll look at more next week, sometimes people would hold celebrations there. So think like a wedding reception, right? Uh, Temple precincts were probably these spaces that had the amenities for that. And so there may be animals that were sacrificed to that God, and then they would all partake of that meal there, of a rich food that was shared. But this animal would have been sacrificed to a false god. Are you starting to see, like, the moral conundrum that some people would have had? They would have said, how can I eat this meat? It's been offered up in service of a God that is fundamentally opposed to my own. So Paul recognizes that there are some Christians who immediately recognized, like, yeah, but this meat was sacrificed to a God that doesn't exist. Of course I can eat it, because I know the one true God that does exist. So I'm free to eat the meat or not. It's my choice. 
But Paul's response here, when he says they do not know as they ought, reveals that they were missing something about their knowledge, that their knowledge wasn't yet complete. And they were talking about something that they didn't know a lot about. You see, uh, Paul is drawing a distinction between knowledge as a noun, like I have completed this body of knowledge, to are you a person that seeks to know? We might say today someone who is curious, someone who's always learning, someone who doesn't have the arrogance to say that I have completed this body of knowledge and I know it inside and out. Have you ever noticed that true experts in their field, true, true experts are often just as quick to acknowledge what they don't know as what they do know? As an example of this, I had a really humble professor in seminary. He was literally the expert on crucifixion in the first century, like wrote the book on it. Uh, and so he knew everything there was to know about crucifixions in the first century. And yet, if you really pressed him on like surrounding things, he'd be like, well, I mean, I know about the act of crucifixion, but I actually don't know much about that hill in Jerusalem. <laughs> I haven't actually studied that location very well. I mean, I've, I've studied it a little. I might know more than you, but, but I, there's more to be learned there. He was real confident about what he knew, but also just as aware about what he didn't know. And maybe this is really the best way to define an expert in our society, not that they have some system of body completely understood, but that they correctly understand where their knowledge stops. Unfortunately, our society is not big on these kinds of experts. Uh, we're not big fans of nuance. We would much rather have um, a soundbite, a headline, something quickly summarized, easily digestible, and probably highly inflammatory is what we're looking for. Like the Avett Brothers songs, I'm no different. I love to talk about things that I don't know about, and I'm assuming that most of us love to talk about things that we don't know a lot about. And I think the question for Paul is not so much, are we going to talk about these things? Or how are we going to talk about them? Are we going to talk about them in love? If you look in verse three, Paul says, if anyone loves God, he is known by God. So in verses one and two, he's talking about these people that might have this knowledge, right? They've got this body of knowledge, but they don't yet know as they ought. And they, he says, actually, it's not really about knowledge. It's about loving God. And in loving God, you're actually going to be known by him. It's almost as if for Paul, there's some correlation between being right and actually loving God. And you know what? Biblically, we supports the same thing. Proverbs chapter one is gonna talk about the fear of the Lord the love of the Lord, an appropriate fear and love of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. I think a question we need to ask ourselves is how do we act when we know we're right? Because in, in Corinth, in 1 Corinthians, Paul effectively sides with the group that knew that they were right. He's like, yeah, you can eat the meat. And yet you don't know as you ought. 
And what should cause you to question that is because you know you don't love God as you ought. That lack of love, the fact that you continue to sin against God, your recognition that you still desperately need Jesus puts you in a position to God where you don't love him as you ought, and so you understand that the beginning of knowledge might just be there. Even if I'm an expert in my field, I have only just begun because I don't love God as I ought. There's an appropriate amount of humility. We rope back our confidence on some things. We have a saying around Trinity that I like, um, that you know, we inherited from previous pastors, and it's that we don't take ourselves too seriously. And it's not because we don't think that church uh, is important. Of course we think that church is important. Of course we think that studying the Bible helps mold and shape us into Christ's likeness. But it's also that we recognize that we are just as dependent upon Jesus. And so we're going to make mistakes. We're going to sin against one another. We're going to have knowledge that isn't yet complete. We're going to state things declaratively that just might be a little off. And so, we like to cultivate here at Trinity an atmosphere where those mistakes can be made. Where those who were wronged and the person who perpetuated the wrongdoing might actually be reconciled. And that growth, love that builds up, might happen. Now, please notice that I didn't say that we ignore wrongdoing. We don't just pass over it like it's no big deal. We do take it seriously because we recognize that it's wrong. We recognize that reconciliation is actually important, that finding out what is right begins with loving our Lord aright, and our knowledge might be shaped accordingly so that together we actually come to right knowledge. Knowledge, what we know to be true, must be regulated by love. And because we know that our love of God is far from sufficient, we might say that we need to stay curious. We need to not take ourselves too seriously. We need to acknowledge that we might, in fact, be wrong. I wonder what this would be like in your marriages, this seeking to know versus just declaring that you have all the knowledge and that you understand the other person, but to lay down the power grab, to not take yourself too seriously, to be curious about why the other person did the thing that they did, and to acknowledge that we love talking about things that we don't know what we're talking about. <laughs> to always be learning. I wonder what it would do to change your relationships with your kids. To not assume that it's about this other thing, but to actually take them for who they are. To say, I don't know everything about this person yet, and I'm curious. I think our Lord does the same. When he invites little children to come up, the disciples are like, what are you doing, man? These kids are not important. They can't carry conversations. And Jesus is just happy there holding a three-year-old, telling some rambling story that is mostly false, I'm assuming, because that's kind of what three-year-olds do. And Jesus delights to know them. 
He seeks to know them. I'm wondering what it would change if our neighbors experienced things in our home where instead of just us loving to declare what we know we're right about, if we actually are a little bit curious and we're like, I don't know, I've never actually thought about that. We're open to exploring. We're open to learning. Because I'm really sad for those whose knowledge must be right all the time. For those who live lives that must always express their rightness or risk being vulnerable with someone else and so losing positions of power or respect. It's a very lonely place to be. So our first point is that love regulates our knowledge because we're always seeking to know more. We're always open to the fact that we're missing part of the picture. But there's a second way that love regulates our freedom, and that's by condescending. Uh, I mentioned this Avid Brothers songs. It's called 10,000 Words, because now that I've mentioned it so many times, somebody's going to want to go look it up. Uh, and it also highlights another truth about this passage. So the song continues. They say young is good and old is fine, and truth is cool, but all that matters is that you have your good times. But, your, but their good times come with prices, and I can't believe it when I hear the jokes they make at anyone's expense except their own. Would they laugh? if they knew who paid. You see, often our good times come at the expense of someone else. It might be said that we can exercise our freedoms and our rights in a way that comes at the expense of those we least expect. You know, I have three younger brothers and a younger sister, so there's five of us. All, all of us, um, but particularly my brothers and I, uh, are really good at having a good time at one another's expense. And I'm sure you can imagine this if uh, you have real siblings at all, um, or friendships. And so, you know, what can happen is, as we're sitting together, you know, as I travel back to the States and spend time with them, it's like something happens the first day that's, like, ridiculous, and we make fun of that person. That joke just becomes, like, a recycled joke through the next long weekend that we're all together. And there is some form of bonding that happens over that, uh, some, some form of knowledge where we don't take ourselves too seriously. But we also know that there's some transition in there that happens where we start having a good time at the expense of one of us. And we've probably all been on the receiving end of that. You see, Paul's addressing some Christians in Corinth who, although they thought they could, they, they knew, and it was correct that they could eat this meat sacrificed to idols, that they thought they could just exercise their rights and it came at the expense of no one else. <clears throat> so in verses four through six, Paul explains that he sides. He's like, yeah, you're right. These gods aren't real. Uh, you can eat this meat. He defends the practice of those because they are, in fact, idols and they're not real. But he continues in verse 7 to acknowledge that those who used to worship, their brothers and sisters who used to worship these idols, their consciences are weak, meaning that they're awfully close to that life they once lived. And so seeing you exercise your freedom actually is quite tempting for them to return. Seeing you, in verse 10, eat the meat, this person might be encouraged to imitate you. They recognize that you're the stronger Christian. And so they say, I should do it too. And so they violate their conscience. And in verse 11 and 12, you sin against your brother and you sin against Christ. Paul's logic here is that even if we are objectively right, 
our knowledge being regulated by love demands that we condescend to the persons whose conscience would be violated. This is fascinatingly complex if we try to apply it to any sort of, of modern example. Um, you know, last week we talked about how God wants us to be able to choose between something that's good and better. Like, as long as they're good options, uh, there might be something that is objectively better, but that God's made you to do good things too. And it's good to do those good things that he's made you to do. Now, in this section, Paul doesn't get bogged down about whether it's good or better. Uh, he's interested in the way that that's r regulated. And he says that you don't just get to do whatever good you want to do despite what it does to your brothers and sisters in Christ. We all really want to be right, don't we? I had a conversation <clears throat> with a boss, a boss once, uh, and it was a phone call through the evening, and I don't know, it ended about 7 p.m., and I was stewing the rest of the day, just frustrated, because my boss was really wrong, and I knew I was right. I was so frustrated, I didn't sleep that next night because I was just running through all of the things that I knew that I was gonna say tomorrow to make sure that he knew I was right. I knew that I had it, it was foolproof. Have you ever sat fuming about a response like that? I wonder if your freedom is being regulated more by rightness and less by love. Have you ever sat fuming about how you're gonna to respond to that particular Facebook post? Have you laid awake shuffling through and organizing what you're gonna to say to that family member who just brought up that thing again? I can guarantee that if love regulates the reason that you're building that argument, you'll probably sleep just fine at night. That rightness is the one that usually keeps you awake. You see, Paul has already sided intellectually with one particular viewpoint, the strong, the eating meat sacrifice to idols viewpoint, but simultaneously says that the weaker's conscience, because of the weaker's conscience, he would never eat meat. He would condescend to the opposing view that is incorrect out of love. In matters of conscience, the stronger brother is the one who can condescend to the opposing viewpoint even if they find it objectively wrong. Can you condescend to an objectively wrong viewpoint out of love? Or do you find the fact that I'm saying this shocking in and of itself? <laughs> if you believe that you can condescend, are you sure that you don't often most do it out of smugness? I'm talking about like that kind of uh, arrogance that's like, I'm taking the moral high road, you loser. Um, you know what I mean? I mean, I, I, I live there a lot, so uh, I, I can identify with that. Are, are there principles that you refuse to budge on because they are your right to exercise? You know, this room is full of varying theological positions. How do we handle those things? Do we talk about these things in pride, demanding that our way is the only way and the highway? Or can we yield, not necessarily yielding our beliefs and our convictions, but yielding the fight for those beliefs for the sake of love? 
What about political topics, money, or even vaccines? The mature Christian is the one who, even in their knowledge of what might be objectively right, can lay it aside out of love for a brother or sister and never eat meat. Now, two caveats about this. First, I'm not saying that there are just certain topics that we don't talk about in Christian households. Like, you know, um, the conversations you don't have at the dinner table, politics, religion, money, you know, like, we just, you don't ever do it because it's just bad, and we're just not going to do it. We're going to avoid it. No, we actually believe that Christians, like, iron sharpens iron, and so we actually talk about these things in order to get to what knowledge is. We think that we need each other in this room to actually love God better. And when we love God better, we're actually going to know more rightly. So although we might be objectively right, devoid of loving God as well, we might be wrong. So we do actually talk about these things, but it always starts from a position of love. It starts with the benefit of the doubt. Now the second caveat Mature Christians, the stronger brother, is never the one that's demanding condescension. And I think sometimes we like to kind of use both arguments. We like to say, like, I know I'm right, and I'm the stronger brother, and I'm also going to demand that you come and, and meet me here. Paul says that the weaker's conscience is violated by the stronger because the weaker wants to imitate the stronger. There's an inbuilt recognition that mature Christians are supposed to be imitated and that they take care with the things that they do in their lives that they may be free to do out of their good conscience because it may violate a less mature Christian's conscience. We believe that for most things, there is a right answer. We may not be able to figure it out, but we know that if Jesus was here, that he's going to have a right answer. Some of our theological differences. Can we disagree in love? recognizing that our, our mutual pursuit of Jesus is actually going to work this out in the end? I recognize that our disagreement in love means that we're not always worshiping together in the same churches. I recognize that uh, our disagreement in love might actually mean uh, drawing a line in the sand of that is not Orthodox Christianity. But even then, do you know what regulates that knowledge? Love. Love for restitution of the person who is lost. Love for the person who doesn't understand what full Christian maturity might look like. Love to see the person as Jesus sees them, to condescend to them, to remove any stumbling block that might otherwise trip them up. So if we can think through the two points of our sermon, maybe there's two separate takeaways. And the first, we have to be honest that there, there is something that we might have missed. Um, 
that we don't actually know everything. <laughs> we don't take ourselves too seriously because we know that we love to talk about things that we don't actually know anything about. And even the things that we know about, we probably know about this much, especially in comparison to God. But second takeaway is that we see the other person as more important than our freedoms. We're willing to yield our rights to condescend for the sake of the weaker. Paul wants us to understand that the Christian's role is really to be that of a pastor. And maybe I can use this analogy. You know, Martin Luther was one of the reformers. He actually drew a line in the sand with the Roman Catholic Church and separated, but not after years of trying to reform in love the Catholic Church from the inside. So when he finally separated, one of the things that he broke over was this idea of the priesthood of all believers or the pastorhood of all believers. And the idea was for Martin Luther that all of us are actually intended to be little pastors, that we're supposed to care for those people underneath our care. We're supposed to treat them with dignity and respect. That we're supposed to love them like Jesus did. How did Jesus treat people? And you know, Jesus occasionally had very harsh words for people. But if you read through there, Jesus' harsh words are always for the religious leaders who should have known better. For the people who didn't know better, Jesus yielded time and time and time again. Even for people who had done wicked things. Zacchaeus had cheated people over a lifetime, over a career, out of taxes. He had extorted taxes out of people. There was a number of women who had been sexually promiscuous that Jesus looks at and speaks to gently. He sees the person. Remember, he's curious about them. He seeks to know, even though he knows all things. Lays aside his rights of what is, what is right and actually gives them the knowledge that builds them up. Love builds up. So we've seen that knowledge is regulated by love and that love seeks to know, but love also condescends. And Paul says that love works this way because Jesus showed us how love really works. See, Jesus knew everything. He knew everything perfectly, but you might say, as we've already explored, that he was still curious. He still asked a lot of questions. For a guy who knew everything about everyone's lives that he ran into, he sure does ask a lot of questions. And it says that he's amazed by their faith sometimes. He hears their answers. He knows what they're going to be, and he's amazed. He delights to seek to know. But Jesus also condescends. First, we can acknowledge that God himself became man. That's a condescension in its own right, that God who is uncontainable uh, became uh, in some sense contained in human form, and he's still with that body today. But I think another area of that condescension is how far he was willing to go for us. And this is what I think is amazing about our parallel for condescension to the weaker brother. Jesus had the freedom to do whatever he wanted. He had the freedom over sickness and death. And yet he condescended into death for the weaker of his brothers, you and I. Why? Because he loved us. 
His love for us drove him to the depths of death to go get us. The Bible says that we were dead in our trespasses and sins, that we didn't know where we were, and that we couldn't have ascended to him even if we had tried. There was no amount of good works that were going to get us there. We needed him. Now, we don't have nearly the rights that Jesus has. And although we share in some privileges of the sons and daughters of God by the work that he has done on our behalf, we never actually become God ourselves. But when we lay aside our freedoms, when we lay aside our rights, we bear testimony that a different kind of love has been operating in our lives. We bring love back into the world for the sake of the other. We, like Christ, count others as more important than ourselves. We lay aside every freedom in order to remove whatever obstacles might be there. And this is the sign of mature Christianity. Understanding that love regulates our knowledge and our being right and our decision-making means that we are curious, that we seek to know. We seek to love God better and so to know more rightly, but we also seek to condescend to those around us, even if we know they're wrong. That we might be a people that resemble Christ in how we love. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we are amazed at how far you would condescend to us. That you would see us, that you would know us, that you would know all of the things that we have done, and yet you would come to us, delighting, curious to know more about us. And you would offer us knowledge that doesn't shame or belittle us, but builds us up. Lord, we thank you that you don't gloat over us, that your knowledge is not arrogant, but that it is condescending, that you would identify with our weaknesses. And we ask, Lord, that because you have done this for us, that we might do the same for others, that we would lay aside what we think we know, that we would see the person before us and condescend to them out of love that love would regulate our knowledge, even as love regulates our relationship with you. Thank you for this love. Amen.